Hey folks, Celica here, creator and host of The Color Girl Beautiful. If you're tuning in for the first time, thanks for coming through. We're currently between seasons and we'll be back with brand new content later this fall. But not to worry, there's plenty of content for you to check out in the meantime. Obviously, the episode you're about to listen to right now is amazing, and we believe the entire back catalog is worth your time. But if you're looking for a place to start, I recommend episode one, which is an introduction to the show's genesis, or episode four, which just happens to be one of my favorites. After that, the sky's the limit. I hope you stick around, and I'm super excited for you to hear season two. Anywho, happy listening, and see you around. Hey everyone, Asalika here, host and creator of The Colored Girl Beautiful. My producer Nicole and I are so proud to have completed our first season of the show. It was a true labor of love, and it's still hard to believe that we actually did it. But we did, and we're celebrating by taking a break. We're going to take the next couple of months to rest and regroup and bring you another phenomenal season of stories about Black womanhood. But we didn't want to leave you with nothing to listen to in the meantime, so we went back through a bunch of our tape and picked out some stories and interviews that we really loved but just didn't make it into any of the episodes from season one. And we decided to share them with you. We're calling them mini-episodes, or mini-sodes, and they'll be between 10 and 15 minutes long. Each month, we'll pick a different topic and share stories related to that topic. You can still expect episodes bi-weekly, they'll just be a little shorter, and you'll hear from one woman about her experience with that topic in the context of Black womanhood. We'll pick back up with Letters to Azalea once the new season begins. This month's topic is history. Now, we are firm believers that Black history is 365 days a year, but sometimes we have to remind ourselves of where we come from, and it can be helpful to have a specific time to do exactly that. So in this episode, we're sharing an interview that we really loved, but didn't fit into any of the storylines we had mapped out for season one. It's with Dr. Carsonia Wise Whitehead, who is an associate professor of communications and African-American studies at Loyola University, Maryland. She's also the host of Today with Dr. K on WEAA 88.9 FM. We talked with her to get a little bit more context on the time in which Madam Hackley wrote The Colored Girl Beautiful in 1916, in the early 1900s. I know that growing up, I never learned anything about Black women in college in the early 1900s, um, or at least not with any specificity. So it was really interesting to hear Dr. Whitehead talk about this and give a little bit more insight into what these women would have been like. Okay, that's it for setup. Enjoy! When you talk about the average Black woman, uh, you have to think about where that black woman was geographically. And then second, you have to think about where that black woman's family was economically. The exchange rate to make the money to attend school because it wasn't free, it was supported if you had a family where they had money, where they had goods and services, where they had what W.B. Du Bois called these grade one skills. That grade one skills is being able to make money from your own skills. It's not about being employed. So what were you doing? Were you a seamstress? That was a grade one skill. Uh, were you a teacher? I mean, that's a grade two skill. So I think when you look at where black women were, both geographically and with their family ties and the communities that they were in, that shaped 
their opportunities, that shape their access to education, that shape their access to goods and services, that also shape their access to what churches they were going to attend, what you know, social functions they were invited to, and it shaped who they were going to marry and whether or not they were going to marry on the same economic level or were they going to marry up or were they going to marry down. If you're coming from the South, I mean, you're talking about the Tuskegee Normal School, so you have access to the land. So you're coming with that kind of background knowledge, right? Because nobody's a blank slate. So you would have learned how to work the land early on. But if you ended up at Tuskegee Normal School, it's because education was prioritized in your home. We know that we were coming from a system in 1916 where education was not necessarily prioritized for girls, so for them to make that a priority where you can end up being able to listen to those type of speeches, that started early on in your household, that education was something to be valued, education was something that was pushed, education was something that was supported. I mean, you have to make the space available for the child to attend school, for you to support it, for the child to be able to do their homework. I mean, someone else is doing their chores, someone else is working the land, how are you making the sacrifices, and then where is that internal motivation to want to go to the next step, like to be able to hear those type of speeches, to be able to be in those type of environments, to be able to, you know, become club women because you had, you know, the big rise of club women at that time. It's because you were coming from a home or a community or a church that valued your education and valued your skills and your talent and poured into you. Now, pouring into you was not necessarily pouring money into you. Sometimes just pouring the opportunity to give you access into you. Um, When you talk about club women, this actually comes out of the mid to late 1800s. So it was black women who had a certain amount of education, a certain amount of economic means. Um, Typically, they were uh, mulatto women uh, in places like Philadelphia, Massachusetts, uh, in New York. And they would come together with the idea that because they have been given so much and because they have access to all these things and it was their requirement, it was their duty to work on behalf of their community. So I think about the club women coming out of Philadelphia in the mid-1800s, I mean, 1850, 1855 into 1860, who were meeting, who were organizing, who were attending school, uh, who were gathering money to pay into their community, who were setting up lectures. Uh, But when we look at black women and the rise of clubs, these were social organizations. Black men had black clubs as well, um, men clubs. But we talk about being club women, that you were actively involved in these social networks, But you also shared information, you raised money for your community, you met outside the school or the church, you supported one another, Uh, they would write letters to one another, they would have these albums, and the albums were very much like scrapbooks today. And you would, you know, keep things in your albums and letters and, you know, whatever daguerreotypes, uh, sometimes flowers, and sometimes you would travel and the albums would make their way up. Uh, the East Coast, they said Frederick Douglass was known for carrying albums from one family in, in one area to a family in the next. So it's just a different way that black women organize. Now, there's a lot of research that says that club women eventually evolved into, and this is research that is actually you know valid, club women eventually evolved into the National Council of Negro Women, for example. And it, you know part of it evolved into Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority and Delta Sigma Theta Sorority. All of this, if you look at the, the beginnings of these sororities, it's similar to the infrastructures of club women. And it just continued. 
Um, I do research on Emily Francis Davis, a black woman who kept a diary from 1863 to 1865, and she was a club woman. And they would sell off their goods and services to raise money for the colored soldiers because they felt it was their, you know, noblesse oblige. We have to give back because we have been given so much, right? Charlotte Fortin, the granddaughter of James Fortin, who was at that time one of the richest black men, not just in Philadelphia, but in the country, and so she was involved as a club woman. Now, when you talk about being a race woman, like you're getting now into you know, W.B. Du Bois words around being a race man or a race woman. And that's someone who is committed to uplifting the black community. It's a certain way in which you do research, you, um, you publish, you talk about, you support the work of the black community and of black people. The Colored Girl Beautiful is created and is hosted by me, Aselica Smith. This week's episode was produced by Nicole Hill with editing help from Aselica Smith. A huge thank you to Dr. K for dropping these Black history gems. You can never have too much of that. Oh, and if you're like me and you're wondering what daguerreotypes were, uh, Dr. K mentioned them. They're an early type of photographs from the mid and late 1800s. There's a link in the show notes to the Wikipedia page for it. For everything you ever wanted to know about The Colored Girl Beautiful and the book that inspired it, you can visit coloredgirlbeautiful.com. It's never too late to sign up for our newsletter, follow us on social media, or purchase your very own Colored Girl Beautiful t-shirt. If you like what you hear, send this episode to a friend. And if you've got an extra couple of minutes, give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. Links for both in the show notes. The Colored Girl Beautiful is produced with support from PRX and the Google Podcast Creators Program. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you in a couple weeks.